Father, we rejoice in this blessed opportunity on a new day that you've given us and on this, your Lord's Day, to gather together to study your word, to, to know of our God, to know of your truth. And we do pray that you would help us in this hour to uh, have our minds focused upon the doctrine that we find in the Holy Scriptures and specifically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We rejoice uh, in this. We rejoice in the perfection of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that we are not justified by deeds of righteousness, which we have done, but we're justified solely and alone by the perfection of the work of Jesus Christ, his active obedience unto the whole law and his passive obedience in his death. And we rejoice in that blessed truth, and we give you all honor and praise this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Uh, does everyone have a, a confession of faith? Everyone's good to go? All right. You can turn to chapter 11, the doctrine of justification. Chapter 11, I'll read uh, all the paragraphs. There are six of them. And then we'll have a look at primarily the, the content of paragraph one, um, the, the doctrine of justification, its definition, what it is, but with um, branching out to some of the other paragraphs here as well. So this is chapter 11. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death, for their whole and soul righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love." Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified, and did, by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally, until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from, that state, from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition they have not usually the light of His countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance." The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Amen. 
Well, we come to a, a doctrine um, of justification, and we might want to say of, of justification by faith alone. There are many who fly the banner of Christianity who have a doctrine of justification, but uh, fall short of the true and biblical doc doctrine of justification, which is justification by faith alone. And so this, this chapter carefully uh, and calculatedly, if that's a word, and very, with, a, with great measures of precision, um, it sets forth the proper biblical doctrine of justification by faith. If you, as you've heard perhaps through your life of, uh, of Christianity, some quotes from the old reformers with regards to this justification. You know, Martin Luther said something like, this is the, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Uh, John Calvin, this is uh, justification is the hinge upon which religion turns. Uh, Benjamin Keach, noted by uh, Dr. Renahan in his, uh, in his exposition of the Confession of Faith, uh, Keach wrote, The doctrine of justification is one of the greatest and most weighty subjects I can insist upon, it being by all Christians acknowledged to be a fundamental of religion and salvation. It's, it's of the utmost importance that uh, Christians know what salvation is, that Christians know in particular here what the doctrine of justification is. How is a sinner justified before a righteous and a holy God? Um, John Gill, you, you'll remember Jude 3, Jude, um, Jude writes that uh, he, he wants his recipients, the recipients of his letter, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, in John Gill's exposition on that passage, um, he talks about what it means, what the faith means, the faith, um, uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he speaks about the fact that that includes the Trinity, it includes the, the certain deity of the Son and Spirit, and it includes justification by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is uh, of the utmost importance. It is an essential of our Christian confession. And so we have six paragraphs here wherein the confessionalists are setting forth the, uh, the sure doctrine of justification uh, by faith alone. Um, you know, and these, the, the quotes that I just mentioned by, by Luther, Calvin, and uh, Keech, and Gill, um, they're not the first to say those things because the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ set forth the reality that justification uh, is the hinge upon which true religion turns. And we'll have occasion to look at some passages, chiefly by the Apostle Paul in the books of Romans and Galatians, um, and, and also Philippians, where the Apostle Paul says the very same thing. Um, it is not a gospel that rejects the true doctrine of justification, um, and it is most certain that the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ includes the, uh, the declaration of a proper doctrine of justification by faith alone. Just before we get into the content here, we've noted as we've moved through the confession that when we arrive at a particular chapter, chapters previous to that are intimately connected to that chapter. Um, you know, for example, the doctrine of God is most certainly in the background here. The doctrine of law, though we haven't arrived at that yet, that's coming up in, in chapter 19, though it, it's alluded to and the stuff of the law is touched upon in chapters previous uh, to this. For example, chapters, um, chapter 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6 and 9, uh, to name only two. 
Um, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of Christ are very intimately connected to this, and the doctrine of covenant. Um, if we, uh, how we land on the doctrine of justification as professing Christians will, um, will speak to whether or not we impugn the character of God, whether or not we exalt man instead of casting him down into the dust of sin where he belongs. Uh, it, it'll speak to whether or not we do violence to Christ and the perfection of his work. And it'll speak to how we treat the law and the doctrine of sin. And hopefully we'll, we'll see that as, as we move along. So we want to look at just three things this morning. First off, the recipients of justification. Secondly, what biblical justification is. And then thirdly, the instrument by or through which we are justified. So first off, the recipients of justification. Notice at the beginning of the paragraph here, paragraph one. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. It's a wonderful thing as we move along in these sections with, re with regards to salvation, uh, with regards to the various doctrines of salvation. We noticed it in effectual calling. We're going to notice it here now in justification. We'll see it in adoption, in sanctification, and also in the doctrine uh, of faith. But you'll see that with each of these chapters of salvation, the recipients of these salvific blessings uh, are announced, and it, uh, each chapter is mounted upon the next in describing who are the recipients of these blessings. For example, if you look at chapter 10 the, of effectual calling that we noted last time, those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased to effect, uh, effectually to call. And now when we get to the doctrine of justification, it builds upon the previous chapter of effectual calling. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. And then you'll notice in chapter 12, all those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. And then just we'll just notice one more, chapter 13, those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and spirit created in them, etc., are also farther sanctified. So the purpose, I think, that we are to... Well, one of the things that we're to see here that the confessionalists are setting forth is that inviolable, that unbreakable chain of redemption or salvation. All those whom God predestinates unto life those same people, those same innumerable people, are also effectually called. All those, whom are the, all those whom are effectually called, none lost, are also those who are freely justified by the grace of God. And then, of course, it continues. So there are none lost uh, along that blessed salvific journey of predestination unto life to glorification. All those predestinated unto life, none lost, are those who are in the end glorified. And along that, blessed, uh, along that blessed quest of divine salvation, there are none lost. 
All predestinated are called uh, or regenerated. All regenerated are justified. All justified are adopted. All adopted are farther sanctified. And all those who are sanctified uh, will, will meet that blessed end in Emmanuel's land, singing his praises forever. So, the confessionalists rightly say here, those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. And that, that word is a blessed one there. He freely justifieth. As we notice here when we move along in, in, in this uh, chapter, well, in every chapter, but in this chapter, because that's what we're doing this morning, is there are a number of calculated adjectives that the confessionalists apply here in order to ensure that the recipients of, you know, that those reading, that Christians reading this understand the, the blessedness of justification by faith alone, by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without man included in the equation of justification. It is first and last, midst and throughout, of God who freely justifieth. So the recipients of justification are those whom he freely justifieth. Notice as well, we have this in paragraph 4. The recipients of justification, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. I, I believe what, what this paragraph is, is sort of uh, writing against is the doctrine of eternal justification that that those are e that the elect are eternally personally justified there is a reality to justification that it has an eternal nature um, that all those who uh, all those whom God decreed uh, or that God from eternity did decree to justify all those who are elect but they are not justified uh, they are not personally justified as the confession says until the Holy Spirit applies Christ unto them. So prior to their justification, they are not justified. Um, but the point here is just drawing us back to the fact that God decreed to uh, justify the elect, and in time he does do so. Secondly, and, and perhaps more, well, I'll say perhaps more importantly, but that's obviously an important note, um, is what justification is. Because, uh, of course, at the time of the Reformation, the Reformers were fighting against a perversion of the doctrine of justification propagated by the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, the Papists. And much of this is targeted against the Papist doctrine, against the Roman Catholic doctrine, but not them alone. And we'll note that also the Sicinians, also Unitarians, also Arminians and Quakers. But much of, the, much of what's in the background is the Reformation divide where the Reformers um, upheld, restored, uh, repristinated, whatever we may want to say, restored the doctrine of justification by faith alone against papal perversion. So what biblical justification is? There, there are three affirmations and denials that are contained in this next collection of clauses. So, so three denials and three affirmations. You'll notice the language of not by and but by um, as we read through this, this definition of what justification is. So notice the first set of denials and affirmations. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. And here's the first denial, not by infusing righteousness 
into them. So the, the Roman Catholics, for example, but not they alone, also the Sicinians uh, and the Quakers, who perhaps are lesser known in the history, uh, in the history of the, the church, certainly the Roman Catholics and then the, the Sicinians, but they, they taught, as Renahan notes, that the verdict of justification is pronounced because the sinner has, by this process of infused righteousness, become personally righteousness. So the idea is that God, in salvation, uh, infuses grace into the believer, um, you know, progressively and through, uh, you know, through the, you know, the, the journey of, uh, of that Christian, infuses grace into them, and they attain a measure of personal righteousness by which they are justified. And hopefully we see the problem immediately that that then finds the ground of justification in the individual and not outside of himself. Okay, yes, he is aided by the grace of God, but ultimately and finally the, the determination, the verdict of justification has to do with their own personal righteousness. Um, and this immediately flies in the face of biblical revelation, the character of God, the perfection of Christ, the reality of man, and the weightiness of the law and of sin. Um, yes? Um, they, were, uh, they were a group of people. Uh, Sosinus was sort of their founder. Basically, he was a fellow that, um, it, with the Reformation time, there were proper reactions to the Roman Catholic Church, and there were what we might say perverse overreactions in the Reformation to the Roman Catholic Church. And so Sosinus, from where we get the Sassinians, his followers, um, he, 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 rightly, he rightly rallied against transubstantiation in the Roman Catholic Church, but he opposed vehemently the doctrine of the Trinity, and also of legitimate tradition or the inheritance of our sort of uh, you know antiquity in Christianity. So um, he saw he saw Trinity as a papist doctrine and not the biblical doctrine of the, of God. Um, as well as uh, he repudiated any sort of tradition outside of outside of the Scripture. So he would repudiate a biblical tradition. Um, there are some other, uh, other things um, as well connected to that. It's a snowball of bad doctrine. But, but yeah, he was a, a fellow in the 16th century that, uh, that went way beyond what the Reformers intended in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. So it does not exist today. <clears throat> it exists, um, it exists in, in many different forms. It, the, the Unitarians, which I, I, I think are maybe more strongly in the UK, but also in North America, um, the, the, so they would be the, the anti-Trinitarians in the 17th century and then sort of following through even to our own age, Unitarians who reject the Trinity today um, would be sort of um, the descendants of Sassinians. There are some who take a Sassinianistic approach to certain things in the treatment of the Bible that would affirm things that we affirm but would use almost Socinian-like approaches to interpretation and and things, um, and that's a that's a dangerous road to uh, to travel. But uh, but yeah, that's a little Socinianism in two minutes and thirteen seconds. Um, so so we must we must see and we must appreciate and we must believe along with these confessionalists that justification is not by infusing righteousness into us. 
um, because that again uh, brings down the character of God, exalts man, brings down the perfection of the righteousness of Christ, and does, uh, does all manner of violence to the biblical revelation of what justification is. Um, so the verdict of justification is not pronounced because the sinner has become personally righteousness by aid of the grace of God. Now notice the affirmation then. So it's not by infusing righteousness unto them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons <clears throat> as righteous. And that language will be magnified and amplified here in a moment, but we must stop upon this affirmation for a while and appreciate here some of the language. First off, by pardoning their sins. Uh, wonderful, that wonderful Christian doctrine of the pardon of sins, the forgiveness of sins, uh, the remission of sins by Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we cannot counter, if you will, the matter of sin, the seriousness, uh, uh, seriousness of sin, and the gravity of sin by ourselves. We must be pardoned by the work of someone outside of ourselves. We don't work away the pardon. We don't somehow chip away, uh, chip away to achieve pardon based upon our own personal righteousness. It must come, and as we'll see, it does come from one outside of ourselves. And, and this language of accepting their persons as righteous, uh, this has in the background, um, not only, but it has in the background Romans, uh, 4, 5 to 8, and much of what we see in Romans, I mean, from Romans 3.20 all the way through Romans 5, um, we, we revisit some of it also in Romans 8, uh, but this rich reality of that our persons, as the effectually called, are accepted as righteous, and as we'll see, accepted as righteous, not by anything done by us or wrought in us, but solely by the work of of Christ. Um, perhaps, a, perhaps a passage that we can go to is in Isaiah, just to see some, some biblical, biblical language that immediately destroys any notion that we can, by our own personal righteousness, attain unto a justification. Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, and, and hopefully this passage is familiar to you, within the discussion of God, man, and salvation by Christ alone, and the idea that man can somehow, by his own righteousness, attain everlasting bliss. Notice in Isaiah 64 at verse 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. You know, this, this, language, this language comes with the, uh, the, the most gravity and sobriety here. First off, we are like an unclean thing. You know, if, we're, if a man is to boast that, that he can make his way to God through his own doings, he must immediately be confronted by the reality that all of us are unclean things before God. And then this language of righteousness now being included um, explicitly, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And so the Bible, with 
the greatest clarity speaks against any notion that by a personal righteousness we can attain unto a justification. The, we have the pardon of sins and we have an accounting and an accepting of our persons as righteous. Again, not because of our persons, but because of an accounting and an accepting based upon Jesus Christ and him alone. We'll move along now to the second denial. Notice carrying forth the language he also freely justifieth, and then not for anything wrought in them or done by them. So the language of excluding things continues. The language of denials continue. And the confessionalists here with the warrant and authority and clarity of Scripture are asserting that we're not justified by anything wrought in us by God nor anything done by us. Um, and when I say wrought in us by God, what I mean is, is what you'll see in the Roman Catholic Church is a, a confusion or a conflation of justification and sanctification. That's uh, probably the, the, you know, the simplest and quickest way we can say where the Roman Catholics um, err with regards to justification. They, they would say that with very strong language anathematizing anyone who says justification is by faith alone in Christ alone and his imputed righteousness, they merge together justification and sanctification in asserting that it is by an infused righteousness and that it is also by those things wrought in us and including those things done by us by sure the grace of God, but nevertheless it is a works-based salvation, a faith plus works-based salvation where they mingle justification and sanctification as the grounds by which uh, a sinner is uh, accepted before God. So the confessionalists here, realizing that, explicitly state that it is not by, justification is not by anything wrought in them or done by them. Um, we, we might have also in view in the background the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of their, their doctrine of sacramentology from baptism through to death there is this this observance of certain sacraments where grace is infused um, uh, whereby their faithful adherents are basically justified before God so baptism you know something is wrought in Roman Catholics purportedly um, where original sin is washed away in the rite of baptism. That is sort of the beginning of this process of infused righteousness and this, this rotting, uh, whatever the proper word is, but this, this making it such in the adherent that they are progressively, uh, that they are pro progressively made righteous before God. So it begins with baptism and it continues with the rest of their sacraments. Um, you know, uh, it, with, uh, with the Eucharist, with, um, uh, with confirmation, with, with marriage, with uh, all of these other rites and things, unto death and those final rites um, when, the pre when the priest uh, pronounces, uh, you know, prayer and benediction over them. So in the background is not only simply, generally speaking, a works-based uh, mingling of justification and sanctification, but also the sacramentology of the Church of Rome. So the confessionalists here are asserting with no way of wriggling out of it that it is not by these things. It is not by works. It is not by the, the so-called graces in Roman Catholic sacraments. 
Now notice the blessed affirmation that follows here, but for Christ's sake alone. It, it, it's this continued affirmation that justification is by Christ. And, and we'll notice here in a, number of, in a number of moments that when we say justification by faith, uh, or when we say justification by faith alone, and actually it'll, the next denial will state this, it's not our act of believing, it's not our faith that justifies us. Faith is the instrument uh, that lays hold of, it's that, that empty hand that lays hold of the act of obedience of Christ unto the whole law and his passive obedience in his death. It is the object of our act of believing, it is the object of faith that is the ground of our justification, and that is Jesus Christ alone. Hence, the confessionalists here write that we are freely justified for Christ's sake alone. That, that blessed reality that Christ is the, the, the center and circumference and the sum and substance of our justification and of our salvation. It is for Christ's sake alone. Now notice the third set of denials, uh, of, uh, denials and affirmations here. So we'll carry the language forth. He also freely justifieth, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. So we've noted along the way here, if only very quickly, that with these affirmations and denials, they are targeting contemporaneous errors, the Roman Catholics, the Socinians, the Quakers. And again, we would note maybe primarily the, the Roman Catholics, but not just them. Here we get to, to the Arminians and the Unitarians uh, that are in view because it was them uh, uh, largely that would say that we're justified by the act of our believing or by a measure of evangelical obedience. And that, that simply means the obedience rendered by Christians, almost like a almost like if we could think about it as a, as a, well, really as a reduced law, as a watered-down obedience. Remember that God requires uh, exact, entire, personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to the law of God uh, in order for our justification. Um, this sort of approach to justification significantly waters down the requirements of a holy and a righteous God, bringing it down to a measure of simple evangelical obedience, that we as Christians in our, uh, in our walk with Christ, in obedience to the law of Christ, can somehow merit our justification uh, by virtue of that. So the Arminian and the Unitarian, there was a fellow at the time that possibly precipitated the, the writing of the Confession of Faith, Thomas Collier, who I believe was a particular Baptist, but then, then fell away from that. And that was, he along with the, the Arminians uh, held this particular sort of view with regards to justification that it is, uh, and, uh, it, it is our act of believing uh, and or our evangelical obedience that justifies us before God. But you see the problem there. Um, when you, you know, uh, when the dust of any articulation or any expansion or any flowery language uh, upon that topic settles, it really is that we merit our own justification because it's our act of believing 
that justifies us. It's not something outside of ourselves. However much the grace of God might be involved, it's our ultimately, uh, our act of faith, our act of believing that justifies us or our evangelical obedience uh, to the law of God as Christians. So we certainly, we most certainly exclude that reality. And on that note, just turn to, uh, just turn to chapter 19 for a moment, just something that I, I had mentioned uh, in brief. But remember that we noted that the covenant, God's uh, covenant, well, specifically the covenant of works, and also the law of God and man and sin are intimately connected to the doctrine of justification. Notice this language in chapter 19 in paragraph 1. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So there is this there is this obligation upon man connected to the covenant of works that if a man is to justify himself, is a, if a man is to somehow by himself gain that verdict of righteous before, uh, before the eyes of a holy God, he is to render that entire, that exact, that perpetual obedience unto the whole law. Um, and so coming back to chapter 11 in paragraph 1, uh, we want to notice then, that, my good man, thank you. Um, we want to notice that any of these systems of justification uh, that is to set as the, the, the core of the doctrine or as the matter of the doctrine anything other than the exclusive and perfect work of Jesus Christ in his active and passive obedience um, bumps up against the, the unbreakable wall of God's character and law. Um, and that it is only, it can only be because of the fall that one outside of sinners justifies sinners. That one outside of men justifies men, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Notice. Um, notice this wonderful language that we have as it continues here with the affirmation. So the denial is not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. There is the blessed definition of justification by faith alone that God imputes to the effectually called Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death and notice this language uh, 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 of the community the, the communication rather of certainty and exclusivity for their whole and soul righteousness it's not that it's not that we have Christ's righteousness in part or even in a large part or even in the majority of a part given to us for our righteousness and then a little bit of us, a little bit of man, a little bit of the believer, but it is that Christ's active and passive obedience is the ground of our justification, the ground of our whole and soul righteousness, that wonderful whole and soul portion of the clause there. 
exclusively it is the perfection of the work of Christ in his life and in his death that is the ground of our justification. So it's not our works. It's not an infused righteousness. It's not our act of faith or our act of believing. It's not our obedience as Christians that justifies us, but rather it is the perfect obedience, uh, the perfect obedience unto cross-death reality of the Son of God that is our whole and soul righteousness. Man, the sinner, plays no role in his justification it is from first and to last, midst and throughout, the work of the triune God based upon the perfection of Christ's active and passive obedience. You've heard those, heard those terms before. Uh, no doubt Pastor Butler refers to them quite a bit and rightly so with regards to our blessed salvation. And the act of obedience pertains to Christ's life of uh, obedience unto the law of God. So from... From, you know, from cradle to grave, he was obedient to the law of God. His obedience that we read about, for example, well, in many places, when we talk, at, when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says that it is his, uh, his meat to do the will of the Father who sent him, it, he reiterates that in the Gospel of John uh, quite a bit, that he came to do the will of him who sent him. And that wasn't simply simply uh, to do that will or to set an example, but it was uh, an obedience that was substitutionary also from cradle to grave. Yes, it was the, the joy, the meat of the Son to do the will of the Father who sent him, but that, that will of the Father who sent him, that obedience to the law was rendered substitutionarily in the stead of all who were predestinated unto life and effectually called. So the whole life of Christ is one grand vicarious and substitutionary work for the salvation of the elect. So when we see, uh, when we see Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law, we're, we're to see that blessed reality, the very purpose for the incarnation, that he took on the form of a bondservant and became obedient uh, unto the death upon the cross, that that wonderful language of Philippians 2, that the very purpose of the incarnation was that the Son of God would glorify God through the perfect salvation of the elect. And he does that by an obedience unto cross-death, vicarious perfection. But by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death. So that passive obedience is and you've heard Pastor Butler explain this before we're not to see we're not to see passive there as in passivity or as in the language of a, of grammar as something happening to to perhaps some somebody unwillingly or willingly um, though Christ did go to the cross willingly of course and endured uh, endured the punishment of God in our stead that passive has more to do with the language of passion the, the language of enduring suffering. The language uh, also of, uh, of passive obedience captures not simply the cross death, but the cross death ultimately and finally and centrally, but also his entire life of suffering. Remember, Christ did not only suffer upon the cross, but when he came into this world, he obeyed God's law actively, but he also suffered at the hands of his own countrymen from the outset of his incarnation. 
He was the recipient of, uh, of the hate uh, and the venom of his countrymen from the time of his coming into the world. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Time and again, we see the, uh, the, the Jews wanting to kill him. Uh, they, they want to destroy him. And, though, uh, and, and yet he finds his, his way out of their way until that final act of suffering upon the cross. So his act of obedience captures that life of obedience to the law of God and his passive obedience in his death captures that obedience where he endures the suffering uh, in the stead of all those whom the Father had given to him. And remember, as sinners fallen in Adam, we require both of those things. We require the perfection of an act of obedience, and we require the perfection of a passive obedience. Uh, Adam failed in his obedience in the garden. He failed in his act of obedience with respect to the covenant of works. So we need a perfect Adam who does not fail in order to uphold the righteous demands of the law of God for us. And also, Adam, in violating the law of God, in falling, in disobeying God, incurred the penalty due for the transgression of that law. Death came upon Adam. And so there is a penalty, a penalty that is due for those who have violated the law of God, Adam and all his posterity. And Christ also provides the satisfaction of divine justice in enduring the penalty in our stead. What a blessed thing we have in Jesus Christ. The perfection of an act of obedience, the perfection of a, of a passive obedience. As we consider the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God incarnate went about doing good. You know, we, we read about his, his blessed exploits in the Gospel accounts. Let's never forget, though, that as we're reading through the Gospel accounts and as we're leading, reading concerning the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is doing and engaging and completing and perfecting for us in that, in that life. You know, we, we have these, uh, these blessed accounts of, uh, of interactions with sinners, these blessed accounts of interactions with the unjust as Christ boldly rails against the, the, uh, the God-haters of His day. We have the giving of these parables. We have all of these things that Christ does. And let's not simply see these as blessed and true historical accounts of Christ's doing, but let's move Including that, let's move beyond that and recognize the blessed substitutionary perfection and act of obedience that Christ is doing for us. Reflecting upon our own sin, re reflecting upon the fact that we have broken the law of God, we see in the life of Christ the blessed remedy for that law's violation, the blessed remedy for sin. We rendered nothing but disobedience. Christ rendered nothing but obedience in our stead. We gave nothing but sin. Christ gives nothing but the bearing of the penalty for sin upon the blessed cross of Calvary. This language of imputation is given. So it is the case that we have uh, Christ's act of obedience, as the text says, unto the whole law, and passive obedience in His death imputed to us for our whole and soul righteousness. righteousness. This moves us back to that first language in the, in the first affirmation. But by pardoning their sins and by accounting, 
and accepting their persons as righteous. So this is that, that language of imputation and accounting or and accepting their persons as righteous, not because of what they have done, but imputing or account, uh, accounting them as righteous based upon what another has done, Jesus Christ, imputing not, of course, their own doing, their own perfection unto them, but imputing, that is, accounting their persons as righteous based upon Christ's active and passive obedience. And as we reflect upon the fact that all our deeds, all, uh, all our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags, as we reflect upon the fact that we are unclean things, um, praise God that it is not up to our doings and our dyings in order to be saved because we would never be saved. Praise God that we have the imputed righteousness of a perfect one who was perfect according to active obedience, who was perfect according to passive obedience, and who renders the perfection of salvation for our whole and soul righteousness. What a, what a horrible place it, it would be to be a papist, to be... Uh, you know, to be anyone who rejects and denies the blessed gospel, the blessed truth of justification for a justification that, that inserts man as the ground of meriting righteousness, man as the ground of, of meriting everlasting life. It is a sad case. It is a sad salvation if it's up to man, but it is a perfect and a blessed salvation that we have in truth because it is according to Christ and the perfection of his work. Now notice, let's go to some texts because we spent some time in the confession and we have uh, spent some time talking about these affirmations and denials, but let's turn to the book of Romans for a moment because, of course... The confessionalists here are using biblical language. They're expounding the Bible, summarizing the Bible and its revelation with regards to the doctrine of justification. So you can turn to Romans 3 with me for a moment. When we consider this language of not by and but by, this language where the uh, writers of the confession are denying. They're saying that justification is not according to one thing, but it is blessedly according to another thing. This is, of course, gained from the very revelation of God in the Scriptures. Notice in Romans 3 at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there is a not by statement that comes from the Holy Scriptures. It's not by deeds of the law. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now here comes a but by statement, this wonderful language as the the, the movement from the bad news to the good news obtains here, and we have this wonderful setting forth of justification by Christ. Notice verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we have this, 
This wonderful language that the Apostle Paul brings out in his epistles attached to justification. We're familiar, familiar of course, with the, the, uh, the statement justification by faith. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses two other statements. He uses justification by grace and also justified by His blood, that is, Christ's blood. This wonderful uh, confluence of divine truths, faith, grace, blood, that come together and that speak with regards to the fact that we are not saved by deeds of righteousness which we have done, but solely according to the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And so we have a very clear statement here that it is not by deeds of righteousness which we have done, but solely justification by grace through Christ. Now notice as well in Romans 4. Romans 4, beginning at verse 5. But to him who does not work, there is a not by, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. And that's a wonderful statement right there too, isn't it? God justifies the ungodly. This, this, that clause in and of itself destroys any notion that we're justified by our own act of believing, that we're justified by our own works, or that we're justified by evangelical obedience. He justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And then Romans 4, beginning at verse 25, speaking of Christ who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, we, uh, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that wonderful language of peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let's, let's just stop upon that word for a moment, condemnation. Uh, condemnation, we could say, is the antithesis of justification. Uh, a, a man before a courtroom, uh, a man within you know, the realm of jurisprudence and, and justice is either condemned or he's justified. You know, this, is, uh, this brings to the fore the reality that justification is a verdict. It is a legal declaration from God, by God, of the innocence or the righteousness of a particular party. In the realm of Christian salvation, a declaration of righteous, that the sinner is righteous, based upon something and someone alien to himself, namely Jesus Christ in the perfection of his work. There's it, drawing that, this, this idea of condemnation and justification together with the character of God, you can turn with me to the book of Proverbs for a moment. Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, there's a particular proverb there where we see something connecting the character of God with condemnation and justification. Notice in Proverbs 17.15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So how does this connect to justification? Well, if we have, if we have a justification that isn't by imputation, and if we have a 
condemnation in a sense with respect to Christ, a wrath, uh, you know, Christ as a uh, wrath-bearing propitiation that isn't by the imputation of the elect sins, then we have a God who is an abomination. We have a God who is unjust. If justification is anything other than by imputation, then God is unjust and he is not acting according to holiness and righteousness. But because he does justify the wicked, but by an act of imputation, and that he does judge Christ or pour out his wrath upon Christ, but by an act of imputation, that is the imputation of the sins of the elect to Christ, God is holy and righteous because of that, that twofold imputation. So, in any scheme of justification and in any scheme of atonement outside of or not connected to imputation, we have something where God is not acting according to His most holiness and His most righteousness. We have the blessed language of Galatians as, as we move towards a close here. Now, this passage in Galatians is absolutely glorious for a number of reasons, but the Apostle Paul here Speaking about threefold uh, denials and, and affirmations, the Apostle Paul here, in threefold repetition, repudiates any notion that justification is by the works of the law. Notice in Galatians 2 at verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by, here's that language of not by and but by again. Remember, it's not the confessionalists making it up, or uh, it's, it's Paul. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It, the, the, the language of the Apostle Paul could not be clearer at the point of justification by faith alone. And notice the implication, as, as Pastor Butler has often pointed us to, connected to this passage, notice the implication, um, if justification is even in part by works. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. It, it, Christ's work of active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death is rendered as vanity if justification is by anything other than the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can see, for, for what then, for why then did Christ come into the world if we could even in part justify ourselves? Certainly if we could in whole justify ourselves, but the whole and sole righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us and received by faith alone. And in that, in the perfection of the work of Christ, we have justification. What a blessed truth that God has given to us. What a blessed work that God has done for us. And notice, just in closing, the instrument by which we are justified uh, at the end of the paragraph, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Isn't it wonderful there that they close off, they close off the paragraph by also noting that the very instrument by which we are justified, so not the object, the, uh, the, the, the justification is a free gift, and the very instrument that we lay hold of the imputed righteousness of Christ is also a free gift. God gives us faith. 
the faith by which we are justified. This is why, this is why we, we, we speak about uh, amazing grace, of victorious grace. This is why we exalt the sovereignty of God. This is why we exalt the sovereignty of God alone in the salvation of sinners. Because of the very character of God, the very severity of His law, the very lowliness of man, the significance of sin, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in doing and dying and rising again for a multitude of sinners which no man can number. Praise God for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your truth. We rejoice in the glories of salvation. We rest upon the reality that salvation is not by deeds of righteousness which we have done, but solely according to Your mercy. We thank You that we're saved by the active and passive righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfection of His work rendered in our stead as we go into worship. Might we, might we rejoice in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And might we be rejoicing in and resting upon the perfection of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and help us to return unto you all honor and praise and worship. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior.